Welcome to episode four of the Alan Wake podcast, uh, where it's entitled The Truth. Uh, we have our usual crew here. I'm Lance. We also have Adam. Hello. Ben. Hello, hello. And Mike. Hey. All right, so episode four in the book. So what'd you guys think? Let's get some high-level thoughts before we jump in. So I... <laughs> I can I can start if you want. Uh, what I think, what I really like about episode four is that, like we we we've talked about like how like your expectations kind of get subverted a lot. Like we we're laughing about how I talk about uh, attacking only outside, and then all of a sudden you start getting attacked inside and stuff like that. But what I do think is funny is that up until this point, every every scene that or every like set piece that the episode starts in instantly goes away. Like, you're in the trailer park for 30 seconds, and then yeah. it never touches it again, and it's like, this one, it's like, you kind of expect that, like, you're going to be in this hospital for, like, just a few minutes, but actually, like, stays, and you explore the whole hospital, and then there's, like, not the, it's not really a hospital, it's like more like a retreat. So, that's, like, my favorite, I think one of my favorite parts is that, is just being in, like, the, the hospital right at the start, it just has a totally different feel to the game, um, and then, obviously, we have the music scene um that remedy is uh is known for in this episode as well we'll get better adam and yeah and any high level stuff for jump in uh it's fantastic amazing beautiful one of the best episodes in the game <laughs> i feel like we say that after every episode <laughs> okay, but I, like, episode. I really mean it this time luckily you didn't have me on the last episode because i would have just talked about how much i hate it Hold <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, and I, said, I guess you don't like possess things flying at you i definitely not <laughs> I could have used you, Michael. <laughs> I have nothing but bad things to say about episode three. It was like, a I ransom. know when I said that I thoroughly enjoy episode three, that it is one of my favorites, but man, like I'm realizing there's a lot about this game that I just really don't remember because of how long it's been since I played it. And yeah, like this is hands down, I, I think atmospherically one of the best ones, like the little uh, fun little, like the artwork that's kind of scattered around, like whether it's a guy painting it or just kind of like scattered around the, the hospital part. I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And, I mean, Vikings. So, yeah, what's that to love? Yep. So, so let's just hop right into it. So after the, the recap of episode uh, three, you jump in and you, you hear the voice of, of Alice. Kind of saying, like, hey, baby, I'm here. It's going to be okay. Switches to Emil Hartman. And then you kind of wake up in the room. So, I mean... Take it away. What do you guys? I mean, it's a to me, it's a pretty powerful start, and even more confusing. There's still a lot of like, well, well what's happening? Where I do want to know because this is like our second or third time or fourth time going through this game. Uh, the first time you played, if you remember, did you buy it even for a second that maybe this was all on Alan's head and like that was going to be like one of the major twists? Uh, n- no, not not at this point. There was a, there's a point later in the game where it's like the infamous point that, that happens in a lot of these types of like me- of, of this type of media and that's called like it's like the point of no return where like the town is irrevocably fucked like buildings have been destroyed there's a fucking tornado in the background something's insane like and then it, it's somewhere in that point in this game where i was like this is gonna be real dumb if this is all in alan's head it doesn't happen <laughs> here but this inserted that seed the first time I was playing it, this started that seed where I was like, nope, this is a conspiracy. But later on, I think it's right around like the dam, I, I had that thought really strong. 
man, this is going to suck if he's just a crazy person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I got to say, Emil Hartman, like the way they wrote that audio, and we'll get to kind of when they're walking around, man, it is a great, like, explanation of what could be happening to Alan Wake. It's very comprehensive. Believable. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason for everything. Well, it's really fun, too, because we've already kind of talked about the whole unreliable narrator, about how there's, like, little, like, hints that you might be mistaken kind of dropped throughout, or, like, the possibility of it being in his head is kind of, like, hinted at throughout the story so far. So having it really kind of, like, you know, rather than a hint, it's beating you over the head with it in this episode. It's just kind of like a, oh, oh, crap. But it's almost like because it's so forceful, it makes it so you don't really believe it, but it's still kind of fun that they play on that more. Yeah. So you wake up... um... That was, it was interesting. I was, you know, playing through and trying to look into more details. I was trying to think of the connection between Alice and Emil, and we know that they had talked quite a bit. Why Alan or the darkness or whatever was happening kind of make that switch between the two? Um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. A lot of, a lot of Easter eggs in this room is when you, when you start up, especially in Emerson's room. Right. So whatever. Then we got the, the Night Springs Xbox game. Yeah, <laughs> you got an Xbox 360. And have a map that may or may not be the hedge maze later. There was something else. Was it the hedge maze? I was trying to figure out if that's what I was looking at. I knew that. So he's like a game designer, um, and you can tell because like it's a retreat for creative. So like everybody in all the different rooms that you can visit, or the ones even the ones you can just sort of peek through, are all sort of different like avenues of creativity. There's like artists and. Uh, Alan's like a writer, and then you have Emerson, who seems like he designs video games. Uh, but I couldn't tell exactly what I was looking at on the on the whiteboard that's in his room that sort of has like uh, like enemy placements, and then also like it looks like there's some talk of like game mechanics of like people hiding behind trees and then light. Um, so I wasn't sure about that. I'm posting actually, a picture in our in our chat. For some see. reason, I thought this was going to be um, maze, and maybe I'm wrong. I guess yeah, I'm totally wrong. There's like a lake in that thing. Sorry. They, they do mention map. they do mention that the original iteration of the maze was circular, but that people got way too lost running around in the corridors, and they were just like, "This isn't fun," and they flipped yeah. it back to square. So yeah, there's some interesting things in his room. Um, well, it's also making any of the other rooms of another part of the level, like as far as that layout on the whiteboard goes. So it looks like it could be from a couple of parts either in this level or maybe in a previous one, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I get the feeling this may have been like a developer's Easter egg to throw all those on there. Yeah, like early level design or something. Yeah. Yeah, just just having fun. I mean, you also have uh, Lane, who's a painter. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite of the the nut jobs in the place. And there are some paintings you can find, I think, in his room. I believe uh, there's one that's sort of like a single person. Um, that might have been in Emerson's room. I don't remember exactly where I took that screenshot. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. That's a cool one. That's the one for everyone listening. Uh... Describe it, Ben. Uh, it's sort of like a... Uh hazy like there's like smoke sort of at the bottom or like darkness and then there's like one person in the distance uh, that's circled. Um, 
I just thought that was an interesting because like the, there's there's a lot of generic assets that are sort of in the rooms, but then there's also stuff that they like very clearly spent time working on. So it's interesting to like look at it and figure out why is it there and like what are they trying to tell you by including that like in such detail. Yeah. Like honestly, all the artwork that it like I've already said like the artwork is one of my favorite things. It's a sheer creepy kind of vibe to it. it has like you know it ties back into Lovecraftian kind of things with uh, oh. Shit, the uh, Pickman's model, I think, is the story that I'm thinking of. Like how artists and creators are very much heavily featured in, you know, a lot of Lovecraft works and even like Stephen King and other horror. So it's another kind of like fun nod to a lot of like kind of classic horror writers and some of the themes that are carried throughout them that's kind of interspersed in this. But the art itself is just brilliant. Like it's very unsettling, very creepy, and therefore I love it. Personally, I really, speaking of the art, I really wish that we saw more more of that the painter's paintings like we see a ton but it's like that that's one of the one of the pieces of this gamer i just like wow i really want to see more of just this like because you see him painting alan he's like oh i'm painting you and it's like this dude screaming in darkness <laughs> and yeah that this this painting that we he just posted in the chat it's just him it's just a dark figure like in pure terror um and then you see later you see all these paintings um, in I think the conference room that are presumably this character's as well. But I just, I really like them. I really like that unique touch because they all look like they've had special care uh, taken with with them. Um, uh, that's not one of them. But <laughs> that's your favorite cutout. But yeah. okay, but, but before yeah, we get these. there, before we jump ahead, yeah. so let, let's walk through. So you're following Emil Hartman. He starts talking about how his um, facility or his hospital whatever you want to call it, it's really meant for creative people. Talks about the kind of that's a specialty. He's walking around and he's really giving you the kind of the um, the story that hey, this is all in your head. And in my mind, that made a lot of sense. Going through and I think the first person you meet is Emerson, and you see him. He's hiding behind the couch, and he's like whispering things at you. He's like, "What's well, like happening here?" In Twin Peaks, he climbs right over it. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. It was there, and then uh, they take you into the uh, the break or the rec room, and you see a, we're all board gamers. You see a Night Springs board game yep. played by uh, Tor and Odin. Yeah, and they talk a lot if you just stand there and listen. Oh, and they're man. their favorites. Thanks. What do you guys think of that? Well, I mean, they're just so like good. the the whole walk here in general is uh, full of like just really gorgeous. Um, sort of the area itself is like beautiful. Uh, you're in like this this magnificent cabin that's like very reminiscent of like, you know, like the like the the hotel in The Shining, or like it's up on this huge hill and it's uh, it overlooks like Cauldron Lake, and and you just get like a really nice view of all of the surrounding mountains and and the lake. Um, there's that huge memorial sort of out front that's like the big, uh, it's like a clocker or it's like a sundial. I think. Yeah, it's a, it has a sundial out front, um, and also it has a plaque to Thomas Zane as a memorial. Um, the the sundial itself has that inscription. It says, uh, I think it's in some kind of Latin. Kader. Yeah, uh, which translates to to fall into darkness, uh, which I thought was really interesting because it was it was. Uh, you kind of get the impression, like, going through the area, at least I did, that um, 
Emil knows more about what's going on than he's letting on. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah. Um, so one thing, one thing that caught me when you're talking to Tor and Odin is they call you Tom, don't they? Yeah. They. It, so I mean, like you said, there's so much going on with the Anderson brothers. Like if you just let them talk for a while, they do call you. Uh, I, I believe they call you Zane. Um, I, yeah. But they also make direct reference to Baba Yaga. Like, they actually say the words Baba Yaga, which I never remembered from before. So it's just like it's really reinforcing that connection that we've already talked about, you know, several times already. But they're just going on, like, about pretty much all the crazy shit that's happening so far. They're, like, confirming in their senile kind of way with their classic hammer. and Yeah. I mean, everybody yeah, there uh, speaks sort of in code in, in ways where they indicate that there's that there's some knowledge that they have of, of what's going on in the area. Uh, I think it was Emerson talks a lot about his nightmares, yeah. um, his bad dreams, like he can't wake up, uh, all those kinds of things. He also like says some crazy stuff about like video game marketing <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not like the, the publishers want him to include mullet time and then the game comes <laughs> yeah. about mullet time. And then the writers just want the characters to talk all the time. It was like, it was really funny to me, just sort of, especially because, uh, you know, Sam Lake's probably the one who wrote this stuff. So that's, oh, yeah. he's writing about like this character complaining about writers who never want to stop characters from talking. Yeah. Um, but they all sort of like, will indicate that there's like, yeah, the, the Anderson brothers talk a lot about uh, Thomas Zane and, and Baba Yaga um, and just sort of like, you know, things that they have on, their farm, uh, they mentioned a couple of times, which is a place we go later. Uh, mm -hmm. There's the guy on the... There's Lane, who's making that painting where he says it looks like... He's painted Alan, uh, but like Michael said, it's just like a dude who's like screaming <laughs> in terror. Uh, and it doesn't it's even really look like Alan. Like, that's the funniest part, I think, is that it's literally just a terrified man. And he's like, yeah, this is you. <laughs> it's like, okay. He explicitly says, too, that he, like, wanted to paint landscapes, but then he just started painting Alan, and he just keeps painting, like, all these different images, and, and he says that Dr. Hartman was like, yeah, you should just keep painting those, uh, and you find some, some more of those later. But this is all set across, uh, in front of a backdrop of just, like, this storm that's rolling in, and the entire time you're walking through this place, there's just, like, thunder, and there's, or there's lightning in the distance. You can see the storm clouds, like, the wind starts to pick up. Uh, really, really ominous in like a very fun way. One thing when you're outside and you're, talk and you're talking about the landscape, Ben, you point out for, it was either you or Adam, that you've seen these locations. I think it was in episode three where you see Stucky's gas station and it shows how small the world is. As you go outside, it says, oh, there's Mirror's Peak right across the way. That's where you were. And I kind of want to bring that up just to show that, hey, this is a small town. And all this connected stuff, and no matter how big it is, it's still like kind of centered around this lake. Everything's circling this lake. So, I'm going to give you guys credit for something like that. That stuck with me. as brought it up last time. And it is in, um, it's either in three or it's in this chapter, but you, you can find it, an actual map of, of all of, of, uh, of like everywhere around town on, and everywhere around the lake, and you can actually see like exactly kind of how far away it is. And it is actually kind of surprising how far off Culture Lake is from the town proper. Um, it's it's like it's surprisingly there's there's a pretty big distance. Um, I wish I could find 
this this screenshot. But Ben just posted it. Something. I heard something get boop poop. No, there's more panions. Uh, what were you? Sorry, what were you asking? Oh no, I th Adam. Adam was saying. Uh, Adam. Adam posted. Is his camera working? Uh, oh. Yes, we see you. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Hello. This is um, what I look like. Which doesn't matter to anybody else who might be listening to this. Oh, but it helps the conversation like so much. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mike was asking if we had the map of Bright Falls. Kind of uh, I don't think I have it there. handy, but it is, yeah, it's farther apart than you would think, but they also do a very good job of, like, uh, placing the locations that you spend time within sort of, like, eyeline of each other or placing, like, right. notable landmarks near them, uh, whether it's, like, a radio tower that sticks out or, or other places. Um, I do just want to sort of emphasize some of the things because we talked about the fact that the that the Anderson brothers mentioned some things that they're talking and they talk for a very long time if you sort of let them talk. Uh, but they say some like really interesting things that are the first indication that uh, you get that you're not maybe the only person who's had a run in with like the darkness. Uh, for example, they say that uh, Baba Yaga got to Thomas Zane. Uh, they say that she used us all, took from us. They talk about her taking uh, Thor's Thunder and, and Odin's ravens. He had two ravens. Um, she makes sure it comes out twisted and wrong. Uh, she says things like, or they say things like that he should talk to the lamp lady, uh, Cynthia Weaver, because uh, she knows what happened to, to the other writer, who was Thomas Zane. Um, and then they start talking about how uh, they're aware of the fact that Alan has done something. Uh, they say that he opened the door for her. And then they say that, you know, it was already open a crack, but they didn't mean to, you know, blow the whole thing open like he did. Um, yeah. So there's like a real awareness of the darkness that they have, uh, which is something that we, we sort of explore more when they're on the farm. Uh, but I thought it was really cool that they sort of, they have a, a brief moment of lucidity where like they're giving you a lot of information and then it slowly, they just uh, almost like wither in front of you where they just get, they, they start sounding tired and they start sounding sad. Uh, and it really just makes you feel like, you know, they've been uh, on top of just like a life of rock and roll, like they've been used in, and abused by the darkness. And they're, they're just sort of like a, a, a shell of their former selves. Yeah, it sounds almost like their medicine's kicking in and they're getting tired. <laughs> and I, I don't know if they ever even explicitly mentioned this in the game, but in the uh, in the commentary, they do mention that the entire time the brothers have been here, they've been using the Cauldron Lake. Um, waters as their water for their alcohol. Um, oh yeah, it's mentioned like one of the manuscripts, I think. Okay. At least, oh yeah. So yeah. yeah, so like I think that even like the used um, and and like emaciated is is on purpose because they've been drinking like you know this water which probably has some you know dark effect. Well, and for me, the thing that's really cool about that reference is if you go into uh, you know Norse mythology and you really start diving into Odin, right? Like. The whole idea is that he sacrificed one of his eyes in order to drink from uh, what's it? Uh, uh, is it Immer, Mimmer's well? Or the well of knowledge? Is that? I forget the actual. There's well, yeah. Like some weird. There's like a Y in there. I don't know. But so like, and this water gave him like the knowledge of runes and poetry. And shit. Like, well, uh, poetry came from a fish or some. Need of poetry. Whatever. Different. Like, anyway, 
she drank from this thing in order to get knowledge, and it's just kind of like a really cool reference because you've already got Odin and Thor, and like it's pretty much right on the head from there. Uh, but then he's mentioning the ravens, and he even says thought and memory, which is Hogan and Moonen. Also, you know, the Odin's ravens for a specific reference there, um, and about how she took them, which also could help explain their their being senile um, because. Mm-hmm. Memory is kind of gone. The ability to think clearly is kind of gone, except for like little brief bits that happen in there. So like, they're really playing up the mythology aspect just in a small little conversation, which just I absolutely lose my shit for. I think it's great. Yeah. So anything else on the Anderson brothers before we move on? Uh, no, but I did want to ask if anyone else has been scanning the QR codes as they go through the game, because there's one on the second floor of the of the hospital, and I just posted the link to it. There's QR codes sort of hidden through the levels, uh, and this the one I just, I just put a link Facebook. to it. Yep. First one's the Alan Wake Facebook. <laughs> oh, wait, oh my god, I did not look at any of this stuff. This is great. Yeah, like I noticed the QR codes. Like I think they pop up a couple of different chapters, and each one takes you to a different link, but like that one... Hands that down, one specifically takes best. you to a, a GIF. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty is funny. that Sam Lake? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I like sort of as the storm is rolling in is uh, if you look outside after you're having this conversation with the Andersons, there's like a cutscene uh, where like it, I think the storm starts to get worse and they tell you to go back to your room. Uh, but if you spend some time like looking outside, not only has it gotten dark, but but the way that they do the weather effects, I don't know if it's on purpose or if it just happened to look this way. But to me, it kind of resembled like the darkness was rising from the lake because the there's like it's fog, but it's also like very dark fog and it it's low lying like over the lake, uh, which I thought looked cool. I didn't notice that. That's, I mean, a, that's no. a great catch. I like this episode a whole Dude. lot. <laughs> So you point out, you go to your room, and on your way to your room, you come across the first video of, of Alan. Uh, let me cue that one up. Something's wrong. I'm not myself. It's hard to think that there's a shadow inside my head. I can only focus on writing. Everything else is a blur. I'm trapped in this cabin. Have been for days, but it's always dark outside. My editor is real. I saw her again. She's not human. It's not human. A dark presence is wearing the old woman's face. She was covered in clinging shadows. There's a hole in her chest where her heart should be. I think I've made a horrible mistake. I don't think I'm any closer to saving Alice. It's been lying to me, using me to get the story it wants, and the story will come true. I think that just digs in. To me, that one digs in more until I... Uh, the struggle Alan's going through, and that's really surface level what I'm going to, what I'm saying. Um, I don't know, I just like it. It's just like the struggle he's in, you're learning more about the, the creepiness, and maybe he's not as crazy. Those videos start off, and you're just like, who's this crazy Alan? Now it's coming out, seeing he's like more sane as you learn the stories as he goes through. I would like that one. Yeah, I mean, he's more, uh, it, it seems to me like he's he's getting more sort of lucid over the the situation that he's actually in because a lot of the previous ones he'll talk about like i need to save alice and like this is what i need to do to do it and like i have this editor and she's gonna help me and like we're gonna figure this out and it's almost like he's he's completely under her spell like he's completely tricked and he's getting to the point now where or at least that alan <laughs> in that timeline where he is sort of uh we've reached the point where he's seeing videos of himself where he's uh 
starting to understand sort of the situation that he's really in. And, and this is where he starts to maybe think about how he can find his way out of it. Well, I also think it's kind of fun too, that like essentially the crazier and the darker things are in the world, the more clear and the more sane he is essentially. It's like the worse things get, the more clarity he has. And so it's kind of like a fun juxtaposition. I think he even like mentions it at some point, either in this one or a previous episode. I think it might be this one, but so it's just, it's kind of fun, you know, like the crazier shit is like the more sane he becomes just because, you know, there's only so much crazy you can handle before it starts to make sense. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah, I think that's what the Anderson brothers say too, right? They're just like, you got to be crazy to like start to understand any of this. Yeah. And uh, after that, you head back to your room. And one thing I, you know, I think relates to what we talked about before. I'm not sure if I'm overlooking it. Is okay. No, different. It's a different in the head. It's a head later. We'll we'll talk about it. So you go to your room. You're struggling to write, and then write. It's kind of like at some point you hear some noise, and when it's dark outside, kind of things are not going well at that point at the Lake Cauldron Lodge. Let's see. Um, you hear. Uh, you're in your room. You hear shouting from downstairs. Uh, when you head down, you see the nurse knocked out cold on the ground. And Anderson Brothers challenging a male nurse to fight with a hammer. And I think this is referenced in the manuscript earlier, right? Yeah, it was it an episode finally got his hammer and he could smash it. So, uh, tells Alan, the stage is yours. Seize your destiny. This is what the Andersons tell him. So he runs to uh, Hart- Emil Hartman's office to get some answers while everyone is distracted. On your way to the office, you find someone locked in a closet. <laughs> you find two people. Spoil that one. You find two people. If we're gonna be honest here. Yeah. Go you ahead. Find, yeah, I'm Barry, and then cut out Alan, which is one of the best characters in the game. If we're gonna be like, I mean, I'm just saying, the fact that he lugs the goddamn cutout around with him all across, like, you know, like dark things are possessing everybody trying to kill us world's ending, but I'm going to make sure that this cutout is protected and safe. And I just love like the immediate attachment that he has to it. It's just so goddamn ridiculous. It just, it screams David Lynch to me. And I think it's gotta be kind of intentional as well. I love his reasoning a whole lot because he, he says that he stole it specifically because he wanted to make Rose angry because she drugged him. Yeah, he like <laughs> stole it out of spite, which is the best motivator for anything. Like, it, oh, it's so good. But then he carries it with him through the entire episode. And he even, like, does, like, the thing where he holds it up and it's like, my name's Alan Wake and I'm always pouty if I don't get things just my way. Yeah. It, it, oh, man. Yeah, There's a it, lot of ways that Barry could have been a very annoying character, and somehow he just sli- sidesteps all of it, and he's just a total joy in every scene he's in, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So you see Barry, you talk to him, then looks like you have a run with Emil Hartman after you get into his office and you find all your manuscripts. Yeah, and, and that's where you find, I think, all the, all the other paintings as well. Um, yeah. So it starts to paint this picture of kind of what Harmon's doing before, I think, before the big reveal when you, you know, say, hey, fuck you, you know, I'm done playing this game. Um, you know, you can kind of, I think you can kind of piece together before it, you know, that he's obviously taking advantage of these creatives and, like, you know, keeping them on his, in his little farm and on pills and then 
doing whatever he can. He's probably selling art, selling books, video games, you know. So I mean, one, one thing I think is really interesting is you, you can find that uh, audio recording where he's talking to Alice on the phone and they're sort of having this conversation about Alan's anger and, and what Emil Hartman can do for him, uh, all these things. And that's also where you figure out uh, where the call you received from Alice, I think it was in episode two or episode three came from because it was just cut-ups of this conversation that she had with Emil Hartman, right. which sort of directly implicates him in the, in the kidnapping plot. Uh, or yeah. like the fake kidnapping plot. Right. Uh, and there's a picture of Emil with the kidnapper. Yes. Um, on the premises. Yeah. So he's yeah, like a that... he's like an employee there or a friend close enough to be like in a photo on, on the premises. So like essentially it's the four main people. You've got Hartman, you've got Nurse Cratchit or whatever her name is. You've got the male nurse, you know, gorilla guy that just goes around throwing people around. And then you've got Mott. Right, so it's establishing the four main people that are involved with this operation. But like what Ben was saying, you find that recording in the office, and you play the whole thing, and all the sound bits from the ransom call that you got earlier are taken directly from this recording. So it establishes exactly where all that audio came from, why it sounds so disjointed and kind of weird, change of tone, um, which you know we talked about already. Uh, so it just really kind of establishes that they never had Alice. All of it was made up. It's a bunch of just bullshit, and turns out that you know all the crazy stuff that's happening is what's actually real. So it really helps reinforce. Like I, I would say at this point, it's really what solidifies that that whole unreliable narrator, like is this in his head or did somebody take Alice? Like this is really what completely destroys all of that. Like after this, it's like, nope, the crazy shit is what's actually going on. There was no kidnapping plot except for by Baba Yaga or Barbara Jagger. But yeah, which actually I think, I'm wondering if uh, the pronunciation on that would be a little bit different because in Barbara Jagger, yeah, because like the J normally pronounces a Y, so like Barbara Jagger, Baba, yeah, yeah, I don't know. it's very close. I think naturally, I think that it does sound very close. It, I, yeah, I don't think any of us have like, said it back to back like that yet. <laughs> it, does, it instantly made sense. It's got to be intentional. As well. <laughs> so, goddamn you, Remedy and Sam Lake, and your quality writing, and uh, I'm just jealous. But I don't feel bad now that I'm not the only one that got surprised by these word plays. You know, <laughs> you got Baba Yaga. I learned that Alan Wake is awake. You know, we're <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page. Learning I'm not is behind. Half the battle. Yeah, I'm not behind. This is great. I think it's I think it's also in that room with all the paintings, or it might be in a different room where you can find another recording where he's talking about um, the painter. Uh, where he sort of says that he doesn't actually think he's a creator. He thinks that he's an illustrator. Uh, right. Which, to me, like indicated that he has more of an understanding of the darkness than, than I think anything else. Uh, because he's basically saying, like, this person's not creating these images. He's, like, interpreting them through, like, mm -hmm. dreams or nightmares. Uh, and just, like, that knowledge in and of itself and sort of his positioning the 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 hospital on like right next to cauldron lake and stuff uh and the fact that he uh used to be thomas zane's assistant um which you find out sort of in in one of the manuscripts that you can find uh all indicate to me that he has like a much greater understanding of of the powers of the lake than we would initially assume right well in, in one of those manuscripts he i don't think he referred to himself as an illustrator i think he referred to himself as a producer which means that he knows that he has like no creative, you know, ability whatsoever, but that he can push people to create. And like that's kind of the role that he takes upon himself. And he's definitely utilizing 
what's going on at the lake, the weird abilities there in order to further himself. And it's kind of hinted at very heavily that he was essentially taking advantage of Thomas Zane. Like, uh, almost like an I, abusive relationship kind of thing. Uh, that's kind of the gist I got from it. I specifically went back and checked the typewriter to make sure that it wasn't exactly the same, and they did change the model. It is a slightly different typewriter, just in case anybody really? cares. <laughs> yeah. I can't. Well, and to, I can't. and to your point, Adam, I think this is a good uh, time to, to talk about what um, Emil said to Alan as they come in, because I think to your point about being a producer and how they can how he can make them work for for him is very applicable. Alan, please, you're sliding back into. The... Tell me one more lie, and I'll shoot you in the face. Ah, well, it was worth a shot. Really, Wake, come on. Let's work together on this. You have no idea. Harkin, shut up! Barry, get out of here. I'll catch up with you. Get a car. Oh, Al, let's just- Go! Wake, listen to me. This is a mistake. Don't you see? Together we can create something absolutely wonderful with your ability and mine. Yeah, so wow. he, he had the smirk um, when he when he when he put a meal in, and then you're kind of escaping the darkness. And this one, I believe, at this point, the darkness is creeping up on you. It's almost like a timer, so it, it's it's sucking in. And then before we move on from a meal, one thing I, I caught at this point um, was you're led kind of at some point to think he works with the darkness or for the darkness. Uh, I guess for me, I'm not sure if he's trying to do something different to counter it or if he has his own goals. It doesn't sound like he really wants to kind of give you up to the lake. He kind of wants to control you himself. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you hear that like switch in his, vo in his voice, like that almost tone switch where he's like, no, like you're crazy. Like it's all in your head. Like we can work this out. And then eventually Alan's like, no, like I'm going to shoot you in the face. Yeah. He's, like, he's like, oh, come on. I almost had you though, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's like, but really, like we could work together. It'll be mutually beneficial. Like he completely drops the act entirely, which is just like the slimiest thing in the world that you can do. Um, yeah. But yeah, it definitely seems like it, he's not necessarily working with the darkness. It's definitely like he's he's like that dude who's like trying to make a buck in the apocalypse, where he's just like, <laughs> it's like everything's going to help. But like, hey, we could make some money off this real quick. Yeah, he's trying to run a scam a scam on the darkness. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So Alan runs out of the room. He locks him in there. Here's the scream as we just kind of heard. Then silence. Uh, he exits the lodge, and he's kind of assaulted with things flying at him. And you have some puzzles where you have to like let it break down the door, uh, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I really loved sort um, of moving yeah. through the lodge uh, as it became like more and more possessed. Uh, where it's like it reminded me of like this this moment in Silent Hill. Uh, I think it was three where you're, I think you're at a carnival or something. And there's sort of like, there's a, you're in a, it's like a funhouse attraction or something. And, and as you're moving through the funhouse, there's like the silent Hills, like moving in behind you, but it's like slowly corrupting everything behind you. And it's like the same feeling I got playing this where it's like, you can see the darkness coming towards you. And like, as it's moving through things, like it's possessing more and more things and you have to try and find your way like out of this. Cause you don't have weapons and you can't like fight the darkness with anything but light. 
Uh, so you're kind of trying to like puzzle, like you said, it's like a puzzle sort of getting out of this uh, like poltergeist house. Yeah, it was definitely Silent Hill 3 and fuck carnivals. Uh, they're horrifying because of that. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it, it's also very reminiscent of the dream sequence, the prequel, right? When you're stuck in the house and you have like all the eyes and the TV and everything's shaking. And you're like, how do I get out of here? And it finally opens. Like it's kind of going back to that kind of uh, feeling as well. Like so, it's just kind of fun that it kind of tied back earlier. I really liked it. I really, I, I don't like possessed objects as a rule, but. <laughs> Like I don't think they're fun. I think the physics are wonky. I think it's. I think they're annoying more often than not. But there is something like very fun about turning the corner and there's like 80 pieces of furniture just rotating like in the middle of the room. Yeah, when you first go into that main lobby, it took me forever to find out that you have to turn on the light. So I'm just like running around like, what is happening here? I got to go upstairs and turn on the light to get to his. It was mad. That was bad times in Lance's world when it came to frustrating video game stuff. <laughs> Uh, one thing I do want to note: Did you guys stop and watch that very strange commercial, like the TV <laughs> yes. that just had commercials on it? And you think like, like, oh, maybe Night Springs will come on, or like maybe Alan Wake will come on? But no, it's literally just a Verizon commercial and a car commercial that plays yeah, on yeah. the television, and then it ends. It's like interdimensional television from Rick and Morty, except for like the really boring Norwegian version. I don't know. It's like all this crazy shit is happening, and there's like a Verizon commercial that comes on. You have to interact with it. Like you click it. Like oh, this must be. You literally have to sit there and watch the whole fucking thing while the world is becoming possessed around you. So you're sitting there like, well, could escape, but first TV. Like you know, it's one of the first interactive ads probably through Xbox Live. Like, hey, let's see if we can get how how well we can sell ads in video games. It really, to me, it felt like somebody was like, hey. Listen, we got to get some product placement in this game. <laughs> we can make some money. wasn't paying him enough. They had to find more ways. And they're to like, revenue. all right, you want some ads in the game? We'll put them on this one television. We'll put two of them. You'll give us a bunch of money to do it. And we'll just like leave it there and never, never mention it. I just, every once in a while, the ad placement gets me. You see the Energizer batteries. I remember we started and it was like Microsoft Sync. Cars, like, I remember that. That failed miserably. Yeah, that did not last very long. <laughs> oh, I used it in a rental car. It worked pretty good once. Besides that, <laughs> awful. Um, but you're escaping the lodge. You go outside. You see Barry outside the gate. Um, I believe it's like the door's locked. You got to find another way out. Can't can't open the gate. Yeah, he gives you a flashlight. Yeah. Do you have that statue of the eye in front? Oh, which I love. It's such a cool looking statue. I'm going to post a screenshot of it. For you yeah. to look at it because it's beautiful. Mm. I think this is it. I'm not looking. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it's like, it's uh, sort of, it looks like an eye, but it also reminds me of like an old school, like diver's helmet or like the, or like the, um, what do you call those things that the divers like go down in that's not a submarine? Diving bell, but um, yeah. modern version. Pressure pod? I, I don't know. I know what you're talking about. Like a Nautilus or like, I don't know, what, whatever you call them. Uh, but it's sort of like suspended by these tendrils of, of darkness. Uh, or like what to me looks like the darkness. Yeah. And I believe it has this quote on it, too, if you read it. Uh, Beyond the shadow you settle for, there's a miracle illuminated. Easy. Thomas Zane, as much as he's like um, a patient, 
He definitely has a lot of quotes around here. Like he's had an effect on the art and the, the writing of this place. Yeah, you find like memorials and stuff to him around, uh, which is interesting because you, you kind of wonder how much of it is um, sort of taking advantage of his fame, even though I guess like you, the people can't really find like the things that he wrote, but people know that he was like a famous poet uh, or like how much of it is actually genuine. Cause I do, I do wonder sometimes Emil, especially considering he was like his assistant is like how much of the tributes to Thomas Zane is sort of like, Oh, like this is how I got famous by working with Thomas Zane or like he was involved in sort of the founding of this hospital and how much of it is like genuine. Like maybe he actually feels bad about what happened. Hmm. I thought I too about like no his one. effect because so like, everybody treats Alan Wake really, really special and, and there could be, a, you know, there could be a lot of reasons for it, but, you know, we see that, that he's writing a manuscript and that the manuscript predicts or has some sort of effect on reality if if we think that Thomas Zane was in a similar boat at some point earlier, but he's a poet, maybe that's the reason why the darkness is forced into some of these, like, illogical paths that it that it takes where you know it's it tries to be frightening and it doesn't take kind of like some of the most logic some of those like you know most powerful moves that you would think that it would be able to take maybe it's because it's it's forced into its little box because thomas zane was a poet um and so the way that he affected the world um was poetry instead of you know instead of actually creating like reality like he he made things that are a little bit less um uh, less based in in prose i guess it is a really interesting point, uh, especially because it, it kind of makes you think, like, how have each of these people who have interacted with the darkness sort of brought it into the world and, like, what effect have they had? Because I think that Alan Wake probably has the most, at least from, from what hints we get in the game, it seems like he has the most direct influence over, like, actual events in the town and, like, big things that are happening. But, uh, like, Thomas Zane and the Anderson brothers almost seem to have, like, a more, like, metaphorical impact or sort of, like... Uh, giving power to the darkness that is not direct power over like people or objects in the town uh, because Alan Wake's very much like he's like a literal like it's a literal horror story uh, but more like you know sort of the the poetry of like the idea of a darkness and and things like that and maybe I mean the Anderson brothers doesn't don't look like they were kidnapped by the darkness like Alan was but Zane maybe kind of fought back and that's why he's disappeared maybe Alan's like working the darkness to a certain extent, you find that out and a, uh, a little bit later we find out about the week that was gone. Uh, but you're so sorry to move on, but as you're exploring uh, the grounds, there are a few things you see. Um, you see more of the writing from Cynthia Weaver. And the one that caught me was says, don't trust Emil. Sitting on a rock. Yeah, and it a got, little late it got for me, that. <laughs> well, it got me thinking... Like, did she write these for Alan, or are these just all left over from Thomas Zane like years ago? And did she know ahead of time, Thomas Zane, this is some bad stuff happening? Like, when were these written in the timeline? Is that, like, I find it that is interesting to have that sort of uh, like as a postscript almost, like because a lot of the the warnings seem to come almost before the events, yeah, uh, or like information that would help you in the future. And then this one is very much like Emil's probably already dead. <laughs> yeah. So you have like this note in a in a hedge maze in the garden, like don't trust this guy. Um it is interesting to think about sort of why it's there. 
So any thoughts on the escape? You got oh. the hedge maze. You have some cool set pieces here. You have more stupid birds attacking you. <laughs> Goddamn. Uh, hedge maze was great. Very scary. Uh, sort of just yeah. hearing like the the darkness, the the people that take and run around, uh, and sort of you're not sure which direction they're coming from. And then you turn a corner, and it's like, oh, there's one behind you, or there's one in front of you. Definitely like the most jump scares I've felt in the in the game. Well, and it's very fitting too because uh, the lodge is definitely uh, nod to the Overlook Hotel from The Shining, right? And, I mean, if you're going to reference The Shining, you're probably going to think the Kubrick version first, and the Kubrick version has a hedge maze. Technically, the book, I think, had like a topiary, which is honestly creepier because animals and stuff. But like, so it's very cool that they included that very direct reference, like, because it's just entirely a giant old, like, thank you to Stephen King and The Shining. How do you guys do on that last fight? Oh, where Barry's unlocking the gate, and you're just like, well, <laughs> I just threw everything. <laughs> yep, flashbangs. Uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a flash grenade. I, I was just wasting. I tried to make it like good at first, like where I was like, oh, I'm just gonna like use minimum bullets. I gotta take them out like so. No, gave up on that real fast. Well, I think before. Get... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you're fine. Oh, fine. All right. So going back to like the the writing, um, I'm pretty sure it's when you're like towards the end of the hedge maze. Uh, there's another little bit after the don't trust email. Like, yeah, thanks, lamp lady. Um, but there's another one that said email made Tom do it which I thought was very interesting as well, because it just shows, like, I mean, the implication here, I would say, is that uh, Thomas Zane, like, was kind of the proto-Alan Wake, that he really woke up the darkness, the thing in the lake, uh, through his writing, and that Emil pushed him to do that, so that there was definitely some kind of influence of the darkness on Emil, almost like maybe he had been used like Rose was used, and that's why he has so much knowledge about what's going on, and those kind of, like, to try, like, cause he knew the storm was coming in, right? Like, he knows that things are getting weird and that when the storm comes in, the darkness is going to come and then everything's going to be fucked. So if he goes in right off the bat and is, like, trying to beat that, he knows that, he knows a lot. Like, what you've already said is that he he knows more about what's going on than he's letting on. Um, so it just kind of, like, shows, like, he has done this before. He did the same thing that he's doing to Alan Wake with Thomas Zane, but then Thomas Zane was able to realize it, and then I think it's mentioned in a manuscript that, I think in a previous chapter, episode, whatever they are, about how he pretty much like realized what was going on, shut the whole thing down, diving suit hug, and just down to the bottom um, of the lake. But. I, I don't remember if it's... So this is where my memory gets a little bit fuzzy, because I don't remember if it's a manuscript that's in the game now, or if it's something that I read post-game, but there is somewhere where I, I think I've read, and my memory might just be making things up, that it was Emil's original idea to use the darkness to try and bring back Barbara Jagger, after she uh, was like, take, w- was in the lake when she drowned, I think. Um, I don't remember if that's something that I read in the future, if I've read it before, or if I read it outside of the game. But I, I believe that's my was my that's what my memory is telling me. Hmm. I have no memory of this place. Yeah, I'm not sure. All right. Um, so after all this. And after that fight you mentioned, which I think we all just use flash grenades, you're with Barry in the car? I died. I died during that fight, right at the very end. I died while I was falling through the gate. The cutscene played to enter the next chapter, and then it started me back at the fight, and I had to do it again. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was just, like, especially brutal. <laughs> it's like, you were so close. Look, you can see the end. Do it again. <laughs> uh, do you guys want me to cue up the conversation in the car with Barry? 
I mean, it's always six and berry. Al, please tell me we're headed for the nearest. You're now leaving Bright Falls. Come back soon, sign. We're going to the Anderson farm. I knew you were going to say something like that. You know what? You owe me big time for this. When this is through, if we make it, I don't care what anybody says, I'm done with darkness. You're going to buy me a tanning bed as a gift, and I'm going to live in it. I'm crazy, but that's fine, Mary. <laughs> oh, you got that right, Al. You're barking mad. You are by far the craziest... But maybe that's inevitable when you deal with crazy stuff like this. It helps. This is happening, Barry. Alice, they never had Alice. She's trapped in the darkness at the bottom of the lake, but she's not dead. Al, how can you know that? I know, Barry. I can... Al, I... No, listen. I can bring her back. I can find her. There's something special about this place. The lake, it, it does something to the works of art created here. It makes them come true. But there's a catch. The dark presence, whatever that thing is, twists it to its own ends. That's why all of this is happening. It's using my manuscript to take over everything. Al, I believe you. It happened to Thomas Zane before. It happened to the Andersons. I believe you. Crazy or not, you're not delusional. Weird shit's going down. That's a fact. I'm on board, man. I'm with you. The Andersons knew about it, but they were too far gone to tell me with all the drugs they were on. But they wrote it down. There's a message somewhere at their farm, Barry. We just need to find it. Look out! And at that point, you get in, the car gets knocked off by a rock coming off the hill. Uh, and... Warhammer. Warhammer. Uh, and, war, you know, uh, hold your breath to learn about the cutout of Alan Wake. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, clearly, you know, visibly in the back seat, highlighted, if you will, spotlighted in the back seat. Um, but then you. Um, so you crash, and you're separated from Barry. You're on top of like a cliff. Uh, he's below. You start yelling for him, and you can definitely hear him. And then he, you start hearing him talk about the darkness, how they're there. Alan tells him to use a flare. He gets all kind of pumped up because it actually works. <laughs> like he's, sounds like he's powerful. Mm. Let's see. I just love how you can see him uh, sort of in the distance run across the field uh, <laughs> carrying the standee. <laughs> Because <laughs> and he's like, all right, like I'll meet you at the farm because you're like look overlooking the farm, and then you just see him like he's this little tiny berry running across the field, but he's carrying this big cardboard stand out with him. I did not see like, that. I've never been chased like, by an axe murderer in my life, but I imagine that if I was, I would not be lugging that around with me. Like, <laughs> but, like the okay, sheer dedication him, he has. You can watch spite. him go across the whole thing. It's so funny. Oh, it's great. It, again, spite is the best motivator. And, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. But, I mean, this is, like, probably one of my favorite sections of the game, just because uh, it opens up in, like, a really interesting way, because you, you sort of go for a while, and you're running through... Like, you don't have a gun, you don't have a flashlight or anything. Um, you're just trying to, like, get by and, and get to the farm. But there's a moment where you run across, I think, a car... Or, you know, you run across a cabin. You run across... Oh, you run across Walter's cabin. Walter, who is not a character I realized you followed through most of the game until I'm playing it through again. Like, I, I, I did not remember that he was just, like, sort of in every episode in one way or another. You're following, like, a story. Random drunk asshole in the, you know, drunk tank. Then he calls in the radio in the next chapter and then gets brutally fucking murdered. And... Yeah. 
He's like, well, and you get to see Danny for the first time. The Danny <laughs> he beat up and went to jail is huge. He's massive. <laughs> yeah. like, shit, kudos to Walter for being able to take out that guy. God damn. Yeah. He's huge. He has, a, he has a huge axe. Uh, he like barely fits through the door frame. That's sort of in the, in the room. Uh, that's a very hard. Pr- like I had to use a, a lot of light to take him out. Yeah. But I loved that cabin. Like I thought that whole design was really good. Where like you run upstairs and you you find Walter. He's like all beat up, and then you run back downstairs or turn the corner, and you hear him crash through the window. Um. That was like that in, was like a good set piece. Then if you go in the basement, you see like the deer carcass hung up from a hook with its guts hanging out. And if you look in the fridge, you see like a bag of guts in there too. And it's like, oh man, like want to smell awful in there. But I mean, like you know, honey cabin, you 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 got deer and stuff, so it kind of makes sense. It did make me realize that you don't see a lot of like gore in the game. Because when I turned the corner and I was like, oh, there's a deer carcass there. It's like cut open. For a moment, I was like, I don't feel like I see like a lot of like guts in Alan Wake. <laughs> This game isn't child-friendly at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, really the only other spot with, like, a lot of blood that I can think of is uh, in episode two, when Ranger Rick, whatever the hell his name is, uh, gets wrecked. Yeah, for the most part, it's, like, kind of sanitized because everyone gets taken by the darkness and then they just sort of, like, uh, poof away. Into, yeah. Yeah. Into no, the no dead bodies in Now There is one well, thing yeah. I did want to mention, though, like, when you're on your way to the cabin with Walt, like when you're still going along the cliff face after the car accident, uh, you come across a campsite, right? Where there's like a little tent, a little like fire and mm-hmm. coffee thermos, because again, just Alan runs on coffee. But I don't I, I wrote this down just because it's such a cool idea for a camping spot. Like the design for this, I think is phenomenal. And like if that place exa- existed, I would camp there so goddamn much. But it's cool because you get like a full layout of kind of the area that you're approaching. Like, you know, the Anderson Farm, you've got like the Firewatch Tower, you've got the other Walt's cabin. All that's kind of like laid out before you from this one particular spot. It's just such a cool little area that Well it also underscores the whole idea that that um is is a lot less explicit but it, it exists in the game that all of the enemies that you're fighting are people taken, right? So, like, there's a lot of hikers, there's a lot of woodsmen, there's a lot of miners or, or you know, cops um, that are just missing. And it's like, and so you just, like, run by this, this campsite that looks like people were there moments before. But, like, you can walk all around around that campsite and there's nobody out there, you know? It's because you've killed them all. Now, is is Walter's cabin the cabin where you find another one of the Alan Wake videos? Because I know that you find yeah. another one uh, somewhere around here, and you also uh, learn from you talk to Thomas Zane, right? Uh, yes, well, I guess so. he appears because he he basically tells you that he's been placing the pages like in in the way of your of your path through the story, and like he's kind of responsible for for laying out these manuscripts throughout the world as you're finding them. Is that during the car crash uh, that you have like that weird like blackout dream sequence, or when does that happen? I think so. I believe it happens before you run back into Walter, because that's where I see it in my notes. <laughs> Let me see. Um... Yeah, I okay. do. I do remember that section where he where he talks about um, kind of just explaining that that you brought him in to help you out, that he was lost somewhere in the in the lake before. 
I'm just trying to remember when that does happen, though, because I feel like this is the first time that we get a full explanation for what did happen to Alan during that missing week. But I feel like that doesn't happen until you've gone through all the amazing set pieces that we're about to talk about. So I'm not, I'm trying to remember exactly when that revelation happens. So I think there's the car crash, and then there's the Thomas Zane bit, and then you run into the video in Walter's cabin, uh, which has maybe my favorite line of the entire, of the entire game, like the whole game from, from stem to stern. Yeah, let me cue up the, uh, the Thomas Zane portion. Amazing voice acting on Thomas Zane, by the way. I'm trying to deliver each page to the right time and place. I'm trying to show you how the story goes. I had seen glimpses of the light before. I had seen it in my dream. It was a strange spaceman or a diver in a bulky suit. He was the one who'd been placing the pages on my path. The dark presence followed the choreography laid out to it in the manuscript, growing stronger and stronger, moving like a storm from one scene of destruction to the next. But it was still bound to follow the story and chain to the dark place it came from. When the story reached the end it longed for, it would finally be free. I do I give think, you back your dream now. I do think that it is, it is still funny to me every time Alan Wake calls Thomas Zane possibly a spaceman. <laughs> like, you ha he has to be the most wonderfully naive human being to look at that obvious diver suit and think, that could be a spacesuit, maybe. Like, He's from the city, Michael. I, it's just, <laughs> it's just so situation. funny. It's just so funny to me. Every time he says it, cause he says it like twice, maybe three times throughout the game, and it, every time I'm just like, oh, Alan. <laughs> it is really, really funny. Oh, Alan. <laughs> Since we talked about the Alan Wake video that comes up of him talking himself again, let me load that one up. Oh, it's so good. I've run through every possible course in my head. If I continue like the Dark Presence wants me to, the story I'm writing won't save Alice. It's a horror story, and it's going to kill her, and me, and everybody in this town. No one will survive. Darkness will consume everything. This is what it's wanted all along. It will be free, unstoppable. It used Alice to get to me, dangled her in front of me to keep me going. It was never going to release her. I'm going to change this. I'll escape. I've written myself into the story. I'm now the protagonist. This feels like a terrible risk, but it's the only way to save Alice. I'll be bound by the events of the story just as much as anyone else who's been woven into it. The story must stay true for this to work. There have to be victims along the way. Near escapes, cliffhangers. In a horror story, it can't be certain that the hero will succeed or even survive. He almost has to die. I'll write my own escape into the story next. I need help. Zane's going to be the one who will help me. I'll make it happen. So now he's definitely describing his plan and kind of how everything worked. So everything's intentional. Um, and he put himself into it on purpose. Accident of the darkness putting him in the story. He did it himself to try to write the end. Which I think is just like uh, really cool because now you're understanding sort of the, the stakes of the story as you've started because the entire playable area that you've been playing is, is all taking place after these videos are sort of showing his thought process. So you've reached mm -hmm. the point where now you're playing the story that Alan Wake has wrote to save himself from the story that he was writing. Uh, 
and I, I just want to say, I think I've written myself into the story. I'm now the protagonist is one of my favorite quotes from this entire game. <laughs> I know people will use it to rag on the game because they think it's really dumb, but I think it is hilarious and fantastic. Yeah, um, and I don't know. Like, I, I, I go back and forth on like whether or not I, I like that. I do think that um, I do think that it is a cool idea in general, just to think, okay, like I can now lay out when this happened. This is the plan. Like, this is you know, this is what's what's going on. Um, but then you know, obviously that it doesn't end up being that simple. Like, it doesn't end up being like, oh, I'm just playing through the story, and then like everything's gonna be fine. Like. <laughs> You know, more. I obviously, as the chapters go on, it, it, it lots more stuff happens. But um, I don't know where I'm going with this point. <laughs> but it's just I, 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 I agree somewhat with like I'm the protagonist now. Is kind of like a cool, a cool like, hey, like I'm gonna take over. Like I'm gonna win. But also, it is very cheesy. Way to say it. It is super. It is super <laughs> cheesy. But it's almost so earnest that you can't even get too mad at it. It's like a. It's a very Stephen King thing to do. I just. I think that it's. It's like more so now playing through it again. Um. I there. There are so many statements. There are so many little paragraphs. Whenever Alan Wake strings more than two sentences together, you never have any idea where he's going to go. Like it's. It, you have no idea. Like. <laughs> One one scene he'll be talking about how like Alice is the only thing that matters. All he cares about is he's gonna get his wife, and then it'll be thirty minutes later, like within the same day, and he's just like, I don't care. Like I just want this manuscript. Like we gotta get this manuscript. Like, uh, like yeah. Alice is is yesterday's news, you know. And then it'll be like <laughs> Barbara Jagger, and it's like it's like so it's so interesting just to hear him talk because you're he does kind of halfway sound like he is he is running his own scripts and he's like halfway trying to figure out like what he actually wrote versus like what he's doing. Well, it, it goes back to the whole conversation we had in, in the last episode or the episode before that, where you're talking about like Mott finds these manuscripts and he's reading it and he's like, we have to follow this script. And like, I'm dealing with like this idiot who's written this thing and like, we're all bound <laughs> to it. But now you find out that Alan's bound to it as well. So Alan's yeah. just like written himself into this story. And he's basically saying like, in order for the story to work, like, I have to be kind of an idiot half the time because like I'm the protagonist now and the protagonist has to make mistakes and the protagonist has to like suffer setbacks because like that's what makes a good story. So he's like setting himself up to fail in a lot of interesting ways, but he's also like doing that because he thinks that, well, okay, like if I write the story this way, then I have a better chance of succeeding, uh, which I think like frames it in a really interesting way. Well, it also just really emphasizes a writer is only as good as his editor, right? Like, and if you just leave a writer to write their own stuff, like if they don't have a good editorial process, then it can be kind of a, a bad thing, you know? So I don't know if it's intentional or not. I'm just going to assume everything is intentional, that Remedy is God and omniscient, and uh, they know all. So, yeah, it, it, it's fun. It's a really kind of like fun angle to have a play, uh, which I love that they include. And it, it kind of makes you think, like, at what point does Alan realize that he needs to write himself into the story? And, like, we're reading it, we're reading it now, and we're sort of seeing uh, the stuff that Alan's dealing with. So he, like, wrote all this backstory about all the stuff that's been going on. And now we're, like, we're playing the part that he wrote for himself, because he inserts himself into the story, like, a week later. Um, but he's also explicitly saying that he's now the protagonist of the story, like minutes before the most ridiculous part of the entire game. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So then I'm just imagining Alan Wake writing this moment for himself uh, to like play through an experience where he's like, it's it's the heroic set piece of the game, uh, and that's just like really funny to me. It's like he's writing himself into Point Break, you know, <laughs> just some other like schlocky '80s movie, and it's brilliant. So it sounds like we're at that point, guys. About this concert. Yep. <laughs> so uh, really, really quick before we talk about the concert, as the only person who has not played Max Payne or Quantum Break, is this the best music scene in all of the Remedy games? Like, is this the best, like, music? Like, they turn on vocal, vocalized music. It's that part, crazy action. The Remedy games have it. Is this the best uh, version, or is there a better one? So... It's a very difficult question to answer because I don't remember at what point Max Payne 3 came out, and then you have to ask yourself, is Max Payne 3 a Remedy game because it is based on Remedy property, or is it a Rockstar game because Rockstar developed it? Uh, no, because there's a moment in Max Payne 3 that is probably among one of the best video game moments with <laughs> music of all time. Because um, I've only played Control, no spoilers to Control, I think that the Max, this scene works much, much, much better than really? the yes. control version. I agree. Really? I agree. I love entirely. the control version. So the control so version's fine. I I actually hated it when I played it. <laughs> I I after after playing through it, looking back on it, I was like, oh, that was okay. <laughs> but like playing it, I was like not happy. I was like, oh, this is not this is not what I want right now. I I do hate to slow walk this just a little bit because I know that we're very excited to get to the yeah. to the uh lighting thing, but there are just two things I want to talk about really quickly, sort of about this huge playable area that you get to explore, sort of, in any non-linear fashion that you choose. Because, like, when I first started, I was like, I forgot that you can sort of go anywhere you want. I saw the fire lookout tower in the distance. I was like, wow, that's, like, really cool that, like, the lights are on over there. I'll make a note of that. Like, I wonder what's going on over there. And then I realized you could drive there, and, like, you could actually explore it. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And also, I wasn't sure if you guys were aware but there is a graveyard on the premises of the Anderson farm. And if you walk up to it, three skeletons come out possessed by the darkness and attack you. And they're like floating yeah. around and dancing in the air. And I don't remember that happening at all. And it was fucking crazy. It startled the fuck <laughs> I out. Did, I didn't like, catch it, that. Oh yeah. No, like, yeah. The place like, the graveyard throughout this is fantastic. It's like a little small town, like, you know, old West minor cemetery where you have something like the cross grave markers made out of wood and stuff in there. But yeah, they throw, skeletons at you man like it uh. three skeletons just like burst out of the ground and they look like they're on like puppet strings and they're all just like floating in the air and then they just start whipping themselves at you and it's fucking nuts and i was like this never happens in any other part of the game because you have the other cemetery in uh episode two i think right where you have like this uh, crap ton of grave markers nothing like i mean like maybe a couple taken come out or something like that but like skeletons certainly don't watch themselves like post to death at your face so yeah it was like very because you've run across this before so you're kind of like like oh this is fine let's wander around it's gonna weird is gonna happen and then you just get like ah yeah it's a really cool moment and i was very happy i found it i'm very happy you found it as well adam because i would sound crazy if i was just the only one talking (laughs) (laughs) i'm pretty ocd about making sure to try and explore stuff and even so i've still missed multiple manuscripts well i had to go over there because i was i'm playing on nightmare so like that's where one of like the nightmare scripts was was like over by that cemetery so after the skeletons and thanks for that ben that was an awesome detail we're at the concert i'm gonna play some music in the background while we (laughs) while we but let's go into it Who, who wants to start so, I mean, 
Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm, I just, so, like, wow, that's really loud. Sorry, let me burn it down for my own personal. Yep. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> that is so loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, for, for me, uh, when I was playing Alan Wake the very first time, I, I had no idea. This is the first remedy game I had ever played. I had no idea. A scene like this could happen. So the closest thing that this scene is to really anything I'd experienced before, and I, I really remember this now, is in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater when you do the Kiss concert. And that was like the only point of reference I had for a arena like music thing. And I was I was very 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 happy the first time this happened i was like this is bizarre this is so weird this is not what i expected i i hadn't seen twin peaks really at that time going through the first sound wake um the first time and i was just like kind of kind of like surprised um that, that they would even be willing to do something that bizarre in the middle of this game um but it's fun it's like really fun We're coming back to it for the second time I was kind of worried it was going to be hokey. Like I, I was, I was kind of like prepared. For it. I was like, yeah, it's probably not going to be as good as I remember. But I was really, really, really pleased. Very, very happy. This, this whole, this whole scene, fireworks, music, the spotlights, which I didn't realize the mechanics of until this playthrough. Uh, <laughs> everything was great. When you got Barry controlling it, telling you what to do, like yep. DJ Barry over there. Don't, don't ever presume that I uh, actually do what anything tells me to do in that game. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just like from, from top to bottom, like a fantastic scene, because it's all just like so larger than life, because you're like on this old, you know, like heavy metal rock set from like these Viking wannabes. Like there's fucking dragons breathing fire, and it's just like the craziest, the craziest setting for this game. Uh, and if, if you have ever been to an Amma and Amarth concert, that's exactly what is happening. Like, they straight up have, like, fire-breathing dragons. They have full-on Viking longships to bring on the stage. It is the most ridiculously wonderful thing. And <laughs> I love it so, so much. It's also great just, like, as a player to have that moment where you're just, like, you're empowered in a way that you're usually not in a horror game. Like, this is, it's a triumphant moment where, like, Barry's running the, the lights and, like, you're fighting off just, like, all these taken and there's just nothing but supplies around you. Like, you can just sort of drop things willy-nilly to take people out. Um, the, like, the music's great. It also brings in, like, that whole idea of a band that is uh, fictional but is a real band that is portraying a fictional band of characters that are in the game writing songs specifically for the game about characters in the game, story right. elements in the game that that also come up like very shortly after this. What what is what's what's also interesting about that idea is that today that idea is, is a little bit more like like that's just more accepted. Like there's there's a lot more examples that I can talk about today of like a fictional band uh, in media that portray you know or like real real bands portray fictional bands. Like that's that idea is just so much more complex today. But ten years ago, that was like I just remember thinking that was so. Like that they did this like in in universe music, and it reminds me just sort of like of of a lot of the things that I love about Remedy Properties is their willingness to sort of blur the line between between reality and sort of like game reality, like where they go out of their way to include a lot of FMV, like they cast actors to play characters and then like might have them voiced separately or whatever. 
um it's just like that that blend of of fiction but then also real life which which sort of mirrors like alan wake entirely because it's a fictional story inside of a, a fictional story um and i just like i love their use of fmv and i love their use of just like not only licensed music but like licensed music that is that is fictionally appropriate for for the set sorry well, it's even better too because Remedy does bring back uh, Poets of the Fall. I believe it's the band that did the music for uh, like what is that called? War. I think is the song we just listened to. They also do the Poet and the Muse, which comes up a little bit later. Uh, but they also come back for Control. Uh, they do the music, a couple of the music things in that one, and I I feel confident that they're in Quantum Break as well. I burned through that really fast, and I was drunk for half of it, so I need to replay it. But I'm, <laughs> I think they're probably like friends of the studio for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're definitely brought in for that. Uh, it re- it reminds me a lot of I don't know if you guys played Left 4 Dead too, uh, but there is a band that exists in Left 4 Dead 2 that is it is a real band that plays fictional songs that you can find in Left 4 Dead 2, and then there's like a there's like the exact same moment they set up in one of the escapes in one of the levels where you're playing like this fictional band's music inside of like a arena and you're fighting off zombies, and I, I swear to God, it's inspired directly from this moment. It's the amusement park level enough for that too. Um, yeah, wow, need to play that again. That's awesome. You guys are making all these connections based off this because same with same with you guys. This stuck with me. This is probably the one of the scenes that you know, I haven't played Alan Wake for ten years, but I remembered like this. Yeah, at least the feeling this got to me. I like lost the details, but I thought this was so cool. It was just so different than anything I'd played before, and it's different than the game. It's like a nice break. Yeah. I mean, like what Ben was saying earlier, you know, it's like you're empowered. You have just ungodly amounts of ammunition, which is always a warning sign. Like when you start getting like a bunch yeah. of ammunition drops leading up to something, like you know you're going to get screwed somewhere along the way. Um, but like just, they just went for the the sheer like schlocky action hero moment, which is just so, so perfect for the scene because like, you know, you got Barry's and they're cheering you on from, you know, the DJ booth. And yeah, the whole thing is just fun. It, you get that heavy duty flashlight. Oh, oh yeah, my god, so I love that thing. Yes. So good. <laughs> the lantern, <laughs> yeah. I love the lantern in that you don't have to focus on the on the two hitters. You just like swing it past them and then they're like pop. And it, you just have that like nice swing where you hit two or three of them and it's like pop, pop, pop. And you don't even have to like stop it on them. It's so great. Yeah. I love that thing so much. Yeah, so that, that that's probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole game, or at least the one that stuck with me the, the longest. Yeah, and it, it is funny too because I like sometimes I go back like I, I think about it and it's like is is was that the intention? Like is the intention of that scene to be like a uh almost like a definitive scene? And it almost seems like it's not like but what it is really supposed to be is a way to measure the rest of the game off of. Like that that scene is like kind of the peak absurdity against a game that, that has absurdity in, in varying levels as you play through it, but it is, you know, pretty rooted in a, its thriller horror um, archetype. Um, so it is kind of a fun, like, barometer, I guess, mid-game, where it's like, we're going to have fun, um, but, you know, it also ends up being the one thing that everybody remembers, even though it's, like, the well, least Alan Wake scene, I think, in all of Alan Wake. It really feels like he took very seriously when the Anderson said you had to be a little bit crazy to get anything, because basically everything since once he gets to the farm is just like, 
Some of it makes absolutely no sense. Like it's just like the craziest thing that can happen in any given moment. <laughs> yeah. But it's also very heavily foreshadowed by the Anderson brothers. Because uh, Lance, when you're reading what they said, something about like Alan, the stage is now yours. They meant it literally. Sees it. They were yep. telling you exactly what was going to happen back at that moment where you had this like giant goddamn fire breathing dragon fireworks shooting up out of a cornfield, which is just a fire hazard. But I guess we're in Washington, so it probably yeah. rains a lot. But so like they're telling you pretty much what's going to happen, but it doesn't like really set in. And I think even like some, a couple of the manuscripts will hint at what you're about to do, right? But yeah, I mean it's just it's just so like you know that a bunch of guys like the developers got together, they drank a shit ton or something like that in a sweat lodge or something, pitched the idea, and they're like, yeah, we'll just go with it. But then like a lot of the absurd moments don't really, at least from what I remember, and again it's been a while, so I could be mistaken. But, like this is like really the last of the absurd moments. I feel like it kind of gets a little bit more heavy and a little bit like things go downhill very rapidly after this, if I'm not mistaken. So it's kind of like that midpoint moment of levity before you just get really sad. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the moment wherein you start to find out like a lot of heavy plot details. And then I feel like the last two episodes are sort of dealing with some of the information you find out in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you guys talked about the, them writing it. I just imagine Alan Wake writing this and just like smiling like, yeah this is gonna be awesome he's just like and there's a fire breathing dragon yeah like, the editor's not gonna cut this one it straight up goes back to that qr it, code you know that sam like made that face when he pitched this idea well it's it's just it is so funny to like just bring back to the other point of like there are huge sections like the fairy scene the fairy scene they show a lot of the town, like you see, you see streets, you see like multiple buildings that have like actual like names and details on them. Like there's like a diner and, and stuff on um, this ferry, and it it just they just never use it again. And then, like it's very know, like, bad. Yeah, and it's, so it's, it's it is interesting to me to think about like where, like how willing they were to do things like that on top of this. Like it all it all paints a very a very cool picture of like the development where you're like, you know, they obviously were not afraid of taking a lot of liberty, a lot of chances. Chances better. Liberties. Well, so a couple thoughts there, because they do go back to like part of what you see when you're coming in on the ferry is reused in a later chapter. Uh, but also, if you watch, I think it was for their 10th anniversary, uh, they released like, a YouTube interview with Sam Lake where he answered a lot of questions about the development cycle. And initially, the game started off as an open world with like full day night cycle. Imagine like Grand Theft Auto, but in a mm. logging town in Washington. So they pretty much like built the map, built the world to, with the intent of it being open world. But then throughout the course of development, they figured they were really going to focus in on the things they wanted to, and they made it more linear. So they already mm-hmm. had all, everything already there in order to utilize for this, but then they just made it so you focus in on certain things. But they still were able to utilize a lot built by making all these different locations kind of come into play. And also, I feel like that's why, you know, in episode uh, three, I think it was, when you're running away from the trailer park, um, why you see the helicopter crash by Sucky's uh, gas station. You know, because it was already there. They'd already built that entire section. They just chose little parts of it to have you actually move through in order to help kind of re-aim the focus of the game. So, think about the game design part of it, I bet that's why the, the world feels so alive. Because it's built, and you can look in the background, and there's things that are built back there. Kind of game mm-hmm. elaborate on what you guys are saying. So when we talk about this, feels like a cohesive world, and everything seems to click. It's probably just for that specific reason, and maybe that's a technique people use now: develop the whole world and limit it down, rather than limit it from the beginning. 
it does make me wonder like what a what a world would have been like where we got an open world Alan Wake game. But I also feel like in some ways it would not play to Remedy's strengths. Uh, to, because a lot of what I love is like their scripted action sequences or like their scripted moments where they can sort of control the camera and the things that are happening. And I feel like it would be very easy to just like have a moment in Alan Wake open world where you're like, oh, like I have to run down this street and like this one dude spawns and it's just like not that fun. Alan Wake GTA. Yeah, that sounds terrible. That sounds I right, balls. At this point, I will take any Alan Wake I can get. Like, I mean, yes, I would definitely play it. Me. But I think it would not be as good as the Alan Wake that we got. All right, so yeah, we definitely so mo- made the right call. With, uh, <laughs> that. Moving on past the concert, which we loved, uh, you end up going into the silo, and we run into the Night Springs episode. Uh, this one is entitled "The Dream of Dreams." Now, Ben, you're kind of our Night Springs guy. You want to walk us through this one? Ooh, does anybody else want to, though? Because we're running out of Night Springs episodes. I feel like I've been monopolizing them. Um, sure. So You do you, babe. So uh, in, this, in this episode, we have a line of people. Um, and our protagonist enters the line, and he starts talking to another member of the line and says, what are we doing here? And he's like, oh, you know, that dude up there, he's the dreamer. Like, we're all his dreams. And the guy on the line's like, "Oh, are you sure?" <laughs> and then the 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 our you know our guest he starts pointing out stuff. He's like, "Look, he's like that girl's like all smiles and rainbows. Like, of course she's a dream. Like, I get all this stuff." And he points out all the weirdness. Um, and then uh, then the alarm clock goes off, and uh, and they all they all die because they're dreams. Um, what I think is the best part of of that is the final line where he says. He says, please don't wake up. I've got a wife and kids. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like there's a special level of sadness to that line where they're like, you could leave it. You could just leave everything else. But that little bit of world building of a dream, like thinking of his dream wife and kids that are also <laughs> presumably invented that don't even exist in the line. Like they aren't in also the line waiting for him. Like they're somewhere else. He's just so uniquely sad, and I, I love, I love that line. It's, it's, it's so great. It's one of, I, it's just, it's just one of my favorites. That, that whole idea is, is just fantastic. I mean, it's very hard for me to view this episode in any way other than through the lens of Twin Peaks season three. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's just ruined any other interpretation I could possibly have of it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, for me, like I have neither wife nor kids. I imagine like somebody just being winked out of existence might be a relief, um, <laughs> but I have a very cynical view on family. So, yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a there is a uh, I'm like trying to stay away from other show spoilers now because <laughs> I speak talk to control. There's another show specifically that has that talks about winking out of existence, which, is, which I thought was very interesting. Um, that is currently in the in the uh, Everybody, when everybody was talking about not too long ago, I was Watchmen, and there is a, a scene that talking about ending and beginning existence in a way, and it's a very cool, cool idea. So after that Night Springs episode, and I think that one relates to Alan Wake a lot, right? Is it a dream? What's happening? These are all kind of figments. So I, think I also loved. Pretty... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna cut in one second. I just loved that it also cuts to static, and there's no. <laughs> ending narration for that episode yeah. which i think is the only one where there's no ending narration he wakes up and then and then the episode just cuts to static and it ends yeah which is fantastic and also 
not to harp on Lovecraft more, but I'm going to. It's so much inside the dreams and the idea of like you know what's real, what's not. Like it, it's another great nod to one of my favorite authors. So makes me happy. Yeah, the static thing is it's perfect. It's so good the way that it finishes up. All right. Yeah, that was it. Was a good one. It was one of my favorites of the Nightspring episodes. Then we make our way to the the Anderson house. You're hearing some music playing. Even Barry says, this looks the place looks like in pretty good shape. Those guys who have been locked up for so long. Uh they escape a lot because you see them in the opening scene. Or in the in the Odeer Diner. Oh, Coconut. Uh. Well, ben, you just posted a picture of a manuscript. This, ma- this manuscript though, it, it contains some of like the craziest lines of the entire thing, because it's talking about them, the Anderson brothers in 1976 and that, you know, they make this moonshine that's made out of the water from, unfiltered water from Cauldron Lake. So, like, they're mainlining darkness. <laughs> it's talking about them, like, running around their farm, and you can just picture it really vividly. Like, they're running around their farm. Uh, you know, uh, one of them is just thinking about cutting out his eye, like his own eye. <laughs> the other one's running around trying to chase lightning. And it's just like they're they've completely lost it. But this is also like, you know, the moment where they are like communing with the darkness in a sense and inviting it to come back. Well, and a couple things here too, right? So I mean the one thing you're cutting out is I Odin, obviously, because he only had the one eye because he gave up the one to drink from the well of knowledge. But the thing that I love about this, and this is such a fucking nerdy thing for me, is that they spell Thor properly, Tor. Right, because normally like P, and then it has an O with the weird like forward slash in it, uh, R. But so we've all been mispronouncing it. Marvel's to blame. Uh, but so I mean, and they're from Norway, so they're gonna know how to spell properly. But I like that they have that little touch in there. It's Tor and Odin, because proper pronunciations. Yeah, it says their songs have power. Something ancient is stirring in the depths, coming back. Uh, and this is in 1976. So uh, I think we're about to hear one of the songs uh, that it might be referring to in the in the cabin once you get the power going. But, sure, but also one thing here is that I believe that everything happened with Thomas Zane happened in the 70s, right? So this is like all happening, I believe, around the same time. Um, I could, was it the 70s? Uh, I feel like it was. Like I feel like we've had reference to Thomas Zane being a writer in the 70s, a lot of stuff with Barbara. Uh, I would actually Jagger love happened. to check the timeline on when the when Thomas Zane's island sank. Yeah, because there was the eruption, which I think happened like, what, 79? I feel like it was referenced, but I'm probably making up a bunch of stuff right now. Uh, so 1969, Barbara Jagger falls into Cauldron Lake and drowns. But she came back. And uh, the whole thing of like, Thomas Zane like, trying to banish her so, until later. So, <laughs> yeah, so that you would, you would kind of assume that uh, like the Thomas Zane stuff happens in the early 70s, and then the late 70s is, I mean, obviously he knew the, the Anderson brothers well enough to have them, uh, like, reference them regularly. Uh, but it all happens very soon. Also an interesting fact, Tom, Alan Wake, born in 1977. So a year after oh. uh, this particular moment with the Andersons running around. Which maybe it's important in the, maybe it's important in the next couple episodes, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. But keep it in mind. So, so you're in the cabin, you restore power. Again, struck me again, why is the uh, electrical panel on the second floor? 
closet, find that weird? Especially because he says it's in the basement. <laughs> I don't, I yeah, don't know. I mean, do you... Do, but it's games, know, like, you gotta, the remedy you people the just house. not understand how like power like did they just have it? like they're just like they have no idea where electrical panels are in houses. <laughs> yeah. No, they they <laughs> obviously like watched it closet. and they just realized what a bad idea having an electrical panel in a basement is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you turn it on uh, and you hear a song, and I'll play it in the background, and we'll end the, the episode with it too. Uh, hopefully, Adam, you can get your. You were able to adjust I've audio? I've got to adjust it now. Yeah, no, I figured it out on my phone. Uh, technology. It's hard. So this is... Not only is this a great song, like, just mm-hmm. musically, I enjoy listening to this song, but it also fucking blew my mind when I when I played the first time and I realized that they were talking about the characters in the game. I've actually had the song downloaded on my phone since I heard it in the game when it first came out. Like, my... Like my favorite game specific song, and oh god, it's so good. Have you guys ever watched the music video for it? Nope. Oh, so they actually no, there was one. they created music videos for some of these songs with the actor who plays Alan Wake and the band. And you can like oh. it's it's fucking crazy. I wanted to talk. I was just gonna save it for like one of the episodes where we talk about sort of the extra materials and just sort of go through like some of the crazy stuff that they did for this game. But it, it's totally worth watching because it's it's cinematically it's very interesting, just like the Bright Falls miniseries. But yeah. uh, it's also like just super kind of dumb, <laughs> dumb in a sense. Well, it kind of reminds me of like what they did with uh, Queen of the Damned, right? Where you had the Vampire Lestat band, and they had those amazing videos or special features in the DVD, which I watched a lot because the music's great. So, I mean, do you, do you want to talk about like any any specific lyrics? Because because what they're basically saying, like the song is playing, the song that that they felt was important, like it's here for a reason. Alan's supposed to hear this, like he he comes to the realization that. Uh, like this is what he's supposed to do. Like this is how we're supposed to fix the problem. Uh, yeah. So it starts off with, "And now to see your love set free." This isn't how the song starts. When you hit play, these are the words that come up. "As see your love set free, you will need the witch's cabin key. I'm the lady of the light, gone mad with the night. That's how you reshape destiny." You, so I mean, that's the clear. Hey, Cynthia Weaver. I mean, they're essentially telling you the history of Thomas Zane, Barbara Jagger, what happened to Cynthia Weaver. Like, they're reciting what has happened. They've recorded the music, and I mean, they're laying out everything that you need to know about what's happening, why things are kind of... Well, I mean, like, to a large extent. They never explain, you know, the darkness of the lake, but it's just... Ah, it's delightful. It's it's very interesting just just sort of hear them basically tell you the story of of the poet and the muse, which is Thomas Zane and Barbara Jagger, who who drowned, and sort of his mistake in trying to bring her back using the magic of the lake, um, only to find out that like oh like I really like fucked up here, and this was a bad thing to do, and so now I'm going to try and fix it, uh, and so he he ends up. Uh, you know, taking them both back down. The song basically says he, he takes them both back down into the lake. Um. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was, again, just coming off the music concert scene, coming to this, I thought it was just super cool. It's like, you know, you have the Anderson, these musicians, and they're not just like a token musicians with guitars in other places. You have the, the rock concert, 
you have this cool music connection, which even digs deeper into the how crazy is this world? How weird is this water that they've been drinking? Like that's kind of driven them to this. I th I think it's awesome. And then Barry is like, I don't know. Everyone's just like, yeah, if we're gonna if we're gonna be stuck here, let's just get drunk. Like. <laughs> And he hesitates for a moment. Alan's like, he's like, no, that's kind of bad. And he's like, ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> and it does not even look like a bottle. Of, it's like, what is this fire? It's a canteen. Like, everything comes in a thermos in Washington, apparently. Oh. It's like my hydro But then it has one of my favorite shine. lines. But then, like, one of my favorite lines when the, they're drunk talking about it. And Alan's like, I'm a writer, goddammit. <laughs> Oh yeah, he's like, I could write ten books this year. They'd be the ten best books of the year. Where's like, yeah, totally. Yeah, you could. Going to, and he's like, yeah, but I could. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a petulant child, and I love it. So then he and then he just gets out. very sad and drunk. He immediately goes very sad drunk. He's like, oh, I just miss her, man. <laughs> like the full on ten stages of drunk are represented so well. And they fucking pass out in this cabin. Well, an alcoholic in the development um, team, but yeah, they pass out, um, and then we see is like a flashback. We start seeing kind of Alan and Alice, or you see Alan on the bridge, and you hear Alice yell, and you're not Alan anymore. You're just spirit watching, kind of like the first episode one, first part of the game. So you, you kind of you chase back to the cabin. You see where Alice fell off the rail, and then you're going down to the dock, and you're trying to save her. Well, you jump in, right? Alan jumps in, tries to save her, climbs out of the dock, and he's crying, and then you see Bar Barbara Jagger comes. And this is the moment where, uh, in the first game, you jump into the lake after her, and then you wake up in the car. Yes. Yeah, this is filling in the missing time. So this is, every, this is, this is sort of the, the missing week that Alan Wake had. Uh, that we're seeing now, sort of the setup for the, basically the setup for the game. Like this is what happened to him originally, and these these are the videos that you've been seeing as you as you've gone across. Now you're having like a vision of the beginning of it through the power of like this this cauldron like uh, moonshine. Yeah, the raw unfiltered cauldron like. But then, so Barbara Jagger's talking. She says she says you can Alice. You write. Calder like has special powers. Alice brought you here to write. You should write. I just wanted to help you write, and you killed her. You were guilty. Um. And uh, you have the power to change things. And so she's trying to get you to to start writing. And so this is kind of how the darkness traps you in a way. Yeah, there's an implication that he's been touched by the darkness in, in the way that, like, Rose was touched by the darkness, where he's not entirely in control of his actions. She's sort of, like, influencing him and, and po pointing him in the right direction by playing on, like, his insecurities and his fears. Like, this is your fault that she's dead, and now this is the way that you have to fix it. Uh, and, like, she's all up in his head, so he can't, like... He's kind of in a trance, sort of, but not quite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like the way that they kind of juxtapose it, where like Barbara's there whispering, you know, sweet nothings into your ear the entire time to try and get you to do what she wants, but you're never really aware of it. It's like she's like she's like the Jiminy Cricket, you know, it's like whispering like this is all your fault, you're terrible, you killed her, blah blah blah. But maybe you can save her. So like the idea of like the you know, 
angel and the demon, except for it's just like two old ladies um, just yelling angry things at you. But I really like how they do that. Where like you're not aware that she's there manipulating you. But yeah, I, I just thought it was really. In a lot of ways, she's like a darker version of Emile Hartman, who was trying to do kind of the same thing in the in the hospital, where he's like, you know, she's dead, and so like, but she wanted you to write, and like, I'm gonna help you write, and I'm gonna help you edit this thing. Uh, so he was like, kind of trying to do the same thing, just not with the explicit purpose of like giving himself the power of the darkness or whatever. It's a great connection. Yeah, because to that phrase. Yeah, and it. Because from his viewpoint, right, he would have just seen that the manuscript was was making predictions of like what would happen in the future. So he was just trying to figure out how he could make use of it, or if he could, you know, like I, I don't think he had gone that far yet in his plan until he saw Alan actually write. Yeah. Um, but this is also so time sort of doesn't move uh, in real time here. Because uh, you also see Alan's escape. So you, mm-hmm. you see the moment where, because uh, like he's in this cabin for a week, um, and I don't think that you spend, like, you see everything that happened in the cabin. Like, it doesn't go over all the stuff that you've seen in the videos. Uh, but you do see the moment where uh, he writes Thomas Zane back into the story. And he sort of comes into the, to the cabin to free him. Sacrificial lamb, essentially. Yeah, it's a man. This is such a cool episode, and then it ends with a uh, favorite Agent Nightingale <laughs> making a, yet another writer reference. God, James Joyce. Comes, yeah, <laughs> Which, like of all the writer references, that's the one he's gonna go with. Like, <laughs> I get it. Ulysses is scary because it's one giant run-on sentence of a novel, but oh, man, I cannot <laughs> stand Agent Nightingale for so many reasons. <laughs> He's awful. It's just like, how is he there? How does he know where you are? Like, why does he show up? Why is he screaming in your face? Why does he almost shoot you? Five different times. It's just so like, with that, oh, I think yeah. we're at, we're at the end of episode four. Of the truth, like it kind of ends. There is one more thing. Oh, there is one more thing I want to mention, though. Um, okay. This episode also introduces another great song. I believe it's when you're in the barn. Um, about I think it's a little bit after you fought, come across the Night Springs episode. Uh, you play a radio, and I for, I'm pretty sure Pat Maine's on there again, but I forget what that says because I didn't care because the music that happens after it's fantastic. It's uh, the Black Angels' Young Men Dead, which the Black Angels are this great like, psychedelic rock band, and I feel like this was actually when I first heard them as well, I think was from this game, and they're absolutely phenomenal. I remember being blown away by the song when I heard it, and it's actually not the only time that around this time that they were used in a video game because uh, Spec Ops The Line also used some of their music I believe in like their um, trailer for the game and then throughout the game itself yeah. uh, and I believe that came out roughly the same time like within a year at least but this is kind of like interesting to me that you know they popped up a couple of times and I mean the music's great and that's the thing that I love about Alan Wake so much I've said it I'm pretty sure every single time we've done this the licensed music is absolutely phenomenal. Like they have just done such a perfect job of finding a wide variety of genres that all seem to tie together. It seemed to be perfect for this just weird whatever game it is they're making. Like everything they've done is just so well placed and yeah. And Black Angels are great. And they deserve uh, more attention. Yeah. yeah. Any more th- 
What are your closing thoughts on uh, episode four? Um, I'll just do a roundtable for you guys. Adam, closing thoughts. Episode four, the truth. The Sandy, uh, and I mean, again, just Barry talking as if he's Alan Wake, and then Alan's like, do you want me to do my Barry impersonation? Didn't think so. Like, <laughs> fucking dickhead Alan Wake that's over there shitting on Barry. Well, Barry's just saving the cat out, you know? Uh, yeah. It's fantastic set piece with the Vikings, like you're straight up in an Amina Marth concert, and it's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's great. Like, just everything about this from beginning to end, even possessed objects and goddamn bird swarms and all. Ben, and thoughts. Uh, less possessed objects than episode three, therefore better. <laughs> Pretty simple. Uh, ben? Uh, I mean, o- overall, I think definitely one of the strongest episodes in the game. It just sort of covers a wide variety of like different gameplay where you're exploring the the hospital at the start of it and sort of dealing with that stuff. You know, going through all the way from like very low action, high exposition to very high action. Uh, and then just sort of like the realization at the end of like how the Andersons tie into it, how Thomas Zane ties into it. I think he's an incredibly interesting character and just sort of seeing uh, what role he's actually been playing. Cause up until now, he's just sort of like referenced in these, you know, things sort of around the town or people mentioning him, but you don't really understand what he means to the story currently uh, to find out that he's sort of like acting as almost a guardian angel. Uh, that you've written into the story, but also is like in some ways sacrificing himself because he, you know, he's let, he freed you from the cabin uh, to whatever detriment, like, you know, Alan says he's like in a a deeper darkness than he was probably in before. Like it took a lot of power or whatever to, to free him from the cabin uh, and to leave these manuscripts for you. And it, it sort of sets up the stakes, I think for the rest of the game, because you know what you need to do next and uh, the rest of the game is just sort of like playing off of the the stuff that you find out in this one. So I think the truth is a very accurate name for it. That actually I, I agree with everything you guys really oh, gave me a thought. Sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm going to intervene here, though. That's fine. He's essentially like the Obi-Wan Kenobi or the Gandalf character, right? So like that made, made me think of like the Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, who has written a lot of books in mythology. And it feels like Thomas Zane is very much filling that role in a lot of like classic literature that like all great myths and stories have of like the teacher that comes out that gives you knowledge, helps you along the path to get you kind of oriented in the right direction, and then sacrifices himself in order to help keep you going where you need to go. Like he gives you like kind of final push, right? And so like I've never really connected that before, but like it's just very much he is that character. There's, yeah, that, that's. I think the thing that's really worth to sort of keep in the back of your mind going forward is the role that he plays, because Alan explicitly says in this episode that he's figured out how to write his escape, and he's going to use Thomas Zane to do it. And so again, that sort of introduces a concept that we'll we'll get to in the next two episodes, which is sort of like what is who is Thomas Zane and what was his role originally in all of this, because you're sort of seeing him in this game, uh, like I almost wonder a lot of times, is he a character unto himself or is this Alan Wake's perception of who Thomas Zane was? And you're sort of writing him to be this hero figure, but maybe this isn't actually the Thomas Zane uh, that like existed back then. Maybe this is just Alan's interpretation of sort of what's left uh, because Alan's the one writing the story. Or is he? I, you guys bring up awesome questions. That's going to lead into the next episode for sure. I agree with everything you guys said. I love this episode. 
It's got some set pieces that just stuck with me for years. Um, but you know, if anyone's still listening, I know I said this last time. I want to thank you guys for like making your way through the podcast. Uh, I'm Lance. With me, we had Adam. Hey. We had Ben. Hello, hello. We had Mike. Hey. We're the Alan Wake Book Club, so uh, we'll be back with episode five soon. But uh, thank you guys so much. There's an old tarot with mystery of Tom the Poet and his muse, and a magic lake which gave a light to the words the poet used. Now the muse she was his happiness and he reigned about her grace And told the stories of treasures deep beneath the blackened ways Till in the stillness of wonder and still in its misty crown The muse she went down to the lake and in the waves she drowned And now to see her love set free We'll need the witch's cabin key Find the lady of the light Gone mad with the night That's how you reshape destiny The poet came down to the lake To call out to his dear When there was no answer He was overcome with fear In vain for his treasure lost Until soon the night would fall And only his own echo Would wail back as his call And when he swore to bring back his love By stories he'd create Nightmares shifted in their sleep In the darkness of the lake And now to see a love set free you will need the witch's cabin key Find the lady of the light Still raving in the night That's how you reshape destiny In the dead of night she came to him With darkness in her eyes We're in a morning gown Sweet words as high as skies Without a word for he saw his great mistake And vowed them both to silence Deep beneath the lake Now if it's real or just a dream One mystery remains For it is set on moonless nights They may still haunt this place
That's how you reach your destiny 